Welcome to Talent Hub Talk. I am Ben Duncan, and this is a place where prominent and inspirational figures from both the local ANZ and global Salesforce Ohana share their stories. In today's episode, I'm delighted to be joined by Jordan Borkey, a Salesforce technical architect based in Denver. Jordan explains how he first came across Salesforce in 2008, what interested him about opportunities in the ecosystem back then, and why he has always found his way back to Salesforce after running his own startups or venturing into the world of crypto. Jordan talks through the differences between working in the startup world and the enterprise space, but also the similarities and how he has brought the lessons that he learned from his startup days into his current role as a technical architect on large programs. Jordan shares how his mindset on certifications has changed over the years, why the CTA is a goal of his now, and how he has developed his own skill set and capabilities through studying for the review board. Jordan talks about burnout and the importance of self-care and how he has become much more aware of this in more recent times. And finally, Jordan provides some advice for engineers starting out in their career. I hope you enjoy the episode. And if you do, please do subscribe for future episodes that are coming through. Jordan, thank you for joining me. Hi, how's it going? Yeah, good, good. Really good to have you on the show. I'm uh, I'm excited to unpick your uh, your Salesforce journey and hear more about you. So um, I, I guess for the benefit of anyone that doesn't know you, um, hasn't worked with you before or come across you online, can you tell me a bit about your, your Salesforce journey, how that got started and um, when you first came across Salesforce? Sure. So I got my bachelor's of science at the University of Colorado Boulder. Uh, I'm here from uh, the state of Colorado. And I was in my senior class, which was a capstone project. And uh, first week of class, professor just had all of the senior computer science students uh, divide up amongst themselves. And sort of companies around the Boulder area had submitted capstone proposals for seniors. And we sort of chose at random a group of folks and myself, cloud computing, because it sounded like, you know, an interesting concept. And it was not something that we had, they had really taught us in school. I think, you know, we had the, the understanding of, of networks and stuff like that and software as a service. But this was, you know, circa 2008. And so the company was interested. They were a, a Microsoft.net shop consultancy out of Boulder. They were using Salesforce for CRM, but Salesforce had just recently introduced uh, the Apex programming language. And so they were interested in understanding, all right, what's a custom object? Is it a database table? Is it, you know, what is it? Could these computer science students, uh, you know, sort of unpack that for them and understand what the Apex programming language was and, and, and whether or not it was something that they could really possibly sink their teeth into, I think, from a, a consulting perspective. So that was my first exposure to it. And, uh, you know, pretty soon after school, you get out of school, you don't have a lot of specifics about what you want to do. I had from internships, gotten some experience with web development uh, in PHP. And so I just sort of started moonlighting uh, around for small businesses that had uh, e-commerce stores. Again, this this era, it was still a relatively novel thing to have your own e-commerce store for you know, brick and mortar retailers. So I was doing that on the side and uh, ended up uh, getting contacted uh, through a, a jobs mailing list from, you know, after I graduated, Blakely Graham and Eric Wu, who founded uh, Bracket Labs, now Taskray, uh, out of Boulder, which is an ISV on the Salesforce platform. 
they invited me to interview with them. And, you know, I was coming from a background of being a relatively rare commodity at the time, which was a uh, software developer, computer science graduate with a knowledge of working on the Salesforce platform. So that's really how I got started with it. Yeah, nice. And and it's interesting because I think with your background, obviously you were studying computer science from conversations I've had with people that would have seen themselves as like software engineers and were studying computer science. Salesforce wasn't necessarily the coolest of platforms to be working on. Why did continuing in the Salesforce space appeal to you after having done your kind of internship and done that in-study learning? Um, to be honest with you, it was the community. I did you know, feel more attracted to the startup scene than the corporate mentality. And so when I managed to bridge that gap, it was a really cool thing for me working with Bracket Labs because here I was not expecting that there would be startups that were the hip, cool places to work at the time that would be interested in my sort of software development talent. Uh, at the same time, you know, I had a lot of my peers go to work at big, larger corporations and everything like that. And here was this very welcoming community in the Denver Boulder uh, software startup scene. And there was a niche there for me in uh, soft or Salesforce development. So I really um, gravitated towards that. And I started to pick up more relationships. Like there was a company called ReadyTalk uh, here in Denver that was using Salesforce uh, as part of their you know, enterprise offering. And uh, I, I got to go see their office for the first time. And they had dogs running around and lift chairs from Colorado's ski and snowboard uh, capital of the United States. So, uh, you know, they had lift chairs in the lobby and everything like that. And I just thought this is the coolest thing. If I could get a job here, I'm thrilled. So it was, it felt like as a junior developer, a way to sort of have opportunities that wouldn't otherwise be available to me, where the interview process and my lack of experience was not really an issue because I had this niche skill set that was really in demand at some of these companies. So, Obviously, that was back 2008, you mentioned, when you first kind of got exposure to Salesforce, but you haven't stayed in the ecosystem that whole time. I know you've, you've kind of dipped out at certain times to work in other areas. What was it that always brought you back into Salesforce? Yeah, definitely. So I wanted to get out and see the world. I had an uncle who was an electrical engineer for Hewlett Packard and lived and worked abroad in Germany uh, during a very formative period of his career. He went on to become very successful. And, and I, you know, was very inspired to go to engineering school because of him. And so I decided that, hey, I should take the leap and try and go do other things. I was in my 20s. My priorities were basically, you know, code, code, and more code. And I really fell in love with doing it. And so any job where I felt like there was an opportunity for me to just be plugged in, you know, the hacker mentality uh, was very much something in the startup ethos that I was interested in. So that took me uh, abroad to Hong Kong for the first time a few years into my career and to work in the cryptocurrency space circa, you know, 2012 and 2013. And, and I, like a lot of other people, was very interested in crypto. And I actually built my own mining rig for Bitcoin, you know, in 2011 or 2012 and took it to the office. And they made me take it home from ReadyTalk because they're like, all right, this was cool at first, but now it's becoming a distraction for all the other developers because you're in here with this computer you built to mine this, this funny money and we don't even know what it is. And so 
that opportunity was really actually really cool because it was the first time I got to work with um, developers in India and learn an entire new aspect of what is a huge component of enterprise software. And we had a, a delivery center in India for the company I worked for in Hong Kong. And so I got a chance to travel to Mumbai and and work face to face with some of the people that, you know, has been really instrumental in my career today, understanding the the engineering and software development culture, especially around Salesforce there. So uh, I kept coming back because, again, opportunities, startups come and go. You you can be somewhere for six months or a year. You run out of money. The project goes a different direction. And uh, Salesforce has consistently been in demand my entire career, uh, especially post-financial crisis. When all, I got out of school, a lot of corporations were realizing that they could replace a lot of people with a little bit of software. And so software as a service really started to ramp up. And I don't even think that wave has crested as far as the evolution goes. And so this whole digital transformation thing that really got kicked off after the financial crisis is something that has continued to, you know, I can always come back to the Salesforce ecosystem. I had a startup in Southern California. We'd run out of money. I had a lot of friends in the Salesforce ecosystem. I was like, well, if I could pay my rent this month, I can pay some more development hours for my company. So I would do odd jobs for, you know, different uh, startups that were using Salesforce around San Francisco at the time. And, uh, you know, it was just a way to pay the bills. And finally, after leaving my startup, which was actually in the esports space, totally different from Salesforce, I joined Accenture and came full circle because we have such a big relationship with Salesforce. It, it felt like, you know, being, uh, you know, really inside the fold more so than, you know, sort of being this ISV casual developer for Salesforce for little startups and stuff like that. It was very, it was very interesting. So. Yeah, I mean, you've been on some journey. I, um, I imagine with the Bitcoin story, you're you're recording this from your palace at the moment. <laughs> no, I, I wish I, I hadn't sold them all. Um, I wouldn't give up the experience that I had, had the opportunity to meet so many uh, phenomenally brilliant people around the world, both from cryptocurrency and from the just the startup scene and everything like that. It's just like if you had bought Apple Computer in the 1990s or something like that. You know, you can't look at an investment like that because you're always going to feel like, ah, oh, I, I didn't time it right. And uh, that's that's one of the hardest things to do with investing. So, yeah, 100%. Your journey is very interesting in that, you know, you, you were a startup guy. Like, you loved that. Like you said, you just wanted to be plugged in coding. And now you're working for one of the biggest Salesforce partners in the world, probably the biggest um, based on, on what I know outside of Salesforce professional services. So they're, they're very different environments, right? People typically either want to work in startup or work in at enterprise level. What did you learn in the startup world that has kind of set you up to be a technical architect in the enterprise world? A lot of it is just grit. I, I guess the way I, I described it the other day that I was thinking about this is in startups, you have a lack of resources, but you have a lot of communication because you're all sitting in the same room. When we were at Bracket Labs, we were sitting in a basement at a house in Boulder and everybody's in the same spot and you can just move like lightning through your decision-making, your iteration, everything just happens on the spot. But what you don't have is resources. So you're a jack of all trades, especially as a technical person or a technical co-founder was the you know sort of buzzword at the time. And um, so you have to do everything, including you know fixing the printer and making the coffee and moving the desk furniture. And you know everyone knows what you're doing, you plugged into. Whereas in the corporate world, 
It is lots of resources, but communication is at a premium. It's so difficult over large projects to communicate lots of information. Some of the things that I learned, obviously, is the grit, the stick to itiveness. Uh, when you are working at a startup, no one is you know, coming to bail you out. It's somebody else's money, your time, and your demo. And whether it's you know shipping a release or fixing a major bug or getting this, this code ready to go because you've got a milestone to hit with your venture capital partners, you're just trying to dole out the money that you have to your you know, contract developers, there's no one to raise your hand to and say, I'm stuck, I need help. When you come to a large enterprise project and there's so much going on and there's a lot of chaos when you join those projects and you're like, I don't even know half the acronyms this company uses. So everyone sounds like they're speaking Greek, you know, because they're describing programs and organizations and people and politics and everything like that. And it feels like chaos and you have to be able to center yourself and say, okay, this is what my role is here. This is whom I have that are resources for me. How am I gonna get them the information that they need to be successful and communicate it to them efficiently? Because lots of our implementation partners are overseas. We're all in different time zones. And so when you're on the other end of a Zoom call, which we're all you know, basically in the Salesforce industry doing now post-pandemic, you have to be so concise in communicating information and getting to the point which is really hard to do, especially with technical subject matter. I, I learned that you know self-starter mentality, and you know I'm not going to have a technical person that's going to be available above me to really help me out. Both one of the the hardest learning processes I had to go through with the startup is also one of the most rewarding because I got the opportunity to start to teach people that I would hire anyone who would work for cheap. So they, you know, they, they needed experience. They were inexpensive. So I could teach them how to do something hands-on pair programming was something that I just, I love to do uh, when I have my startup and I, I don't have an opportunity to do it as much anymore. And then also creating, you know, whiteboarding, comprehensive sequence diagrams and those sorts of things. Those things get overlooked a lot on the tech side of things because, you know, we're always communicating changes in clients and needs and wants and doing enhancements and trying to put out fires all over the place, you know, effective communication of, you know, complex ideas, being challenged on those ideas and and being willing to say, you know what, this isn't the right path forward. I'm going to listen to my team and everything like that, because, you know, at the end of the day, you know, I don't get to dictate to them how to be successful, right? I have to work with my teams for us all to be successful. And everyone has a part to play in that. So that's just some of the thinking that I have coming from a startup background. Yeah, I mean, I guess in a way they're very different, but in some ways they're very similar, right? In terms of if you've only ever worked in startups, it doesn't mean you can't work in enterprise. Like you just have to take the best of what you've learned and implement it in a new environment. Absolutely. You don't know what you don't know until you do it. So I'm actually really happy that I have done both now. And I have a lot of perspective on both now, which is you can only get through experience. And I know you're now on your CTA journey, which I guess when you were a hardcore programmer might not have been something you you necessarily strived for. Um, would I be right in saying in your earlier career when, when you knew of the CTA, you were probably more focused on building than you know having a certification to show that, that you knew your, you, you had the knowledge as well. So how has your mindset changed around things like that over the years in terms of certs and accreditations around uh, what, what you do and don't know? Yeah, I, I didn't get my first certification for Salesforce 
until I'd almost been working with it for 10 years when I joined Accenture. When you are a hardcore developer, I guess is what I refer to myself to, you know, caffeine junkie and code all night. If you're a hammer, every problem looks like a nail. So my solution was always just drill at the code, the solutioning, you know, look at the documentation, have a mental model and just code it as fast as I could. And then maybe go back and rewind and try and explain it to somebody else, which if you think about it in a startup world, when you're a one man show, that's perfectly acceptable because you don't have to worry about, you know, explaining yourself to anyone but the developers who are going to pick up where you left off. And you're right in the same room, like I just mentioned. With the large corporate enterprise projects where you have so many players and systems and interfaces and timelines and deadlines, those sorts of things, coming back to the communication aspect of it, it is so much more important. And what I learned, you know, the, the prerequisite exams for the CTA are multiple choice questions. And in a lot of ways, you can game that, in my opinion, through sort of rote memorization, right? If you read enough test questions through like focus on force, eventually you're going to be able to pick out the right answers on any multiple choice question. The CTA, on the other hand, is so different in the sense that it's not just technical you know, knowledge uh, from memory. You don't have any prompt in terms of like, you know, a multiple choice question, but it's also a presentation of that information in a meaningful and concise way because you're on a clock. You have 45 minutes to present that information, which is an exercise that was very different from what I imagined myself doing as a technical lead or someone in technical management at Accenture, because when I joined a large enterprise consultancy, I thought managing directors are just people who are on sales calls, right? They're making PowerPoint presentations. They're talking to everybody about the warm and fuzzies of you know collaboration and uh, increased ROI and KPIs and that sort of thing. Now that it's it's come much clearer into focus for me, the CTA is really about being that technical party in the room that can answer those questions, but also answer them to an executive level of the expectation of what an executive sales cycle would be like. So when you're speaking to the CTO or the CIO of a company that's about to invest a large sum of money in deploying Salesforce within their organization, their time is at an extreme premium. So you need to be able to answer those questions in a confident and concise way to be able to get through the exam. What I've learned is, is I'm taking that back to work on a daily basis as an architect on a large enterprise project where, again, time is at a premium. We need to communicate complex thoughts quickly, be able to defend our decisions, and also be challenged as the judges are apt to do on the CTA board review, just like other architects or other executives, stakeholders might do on a project. And so, you know, I, I'm taking that practice. You know, it is, there's a lot of practice that goes into being able to give a full mock, a full presentation. I, I keep calling them mocks <laughs> because I've been doing mock presentations for so long. I'm probably going to, you know, be like, I have another mock today when I go to do the board review because. You have to practice so much that it almost becomes like flow state of preparing the presentation and giving the presentation 
because you have to cover so much ground in such a short amount of time. So yeah, those are those are some of the things that have come much more clearly into focus with the final year of my CTA journey. I guess you could get to that point without doing the CTA, right? You you could learn on the job, you could perfect that through constant repetition on the day job. But I guess actually taking the time to study towards the CTA, it fast tracks that, right? Because you're doing, like you said, all of these mocks. It's constant preparation and and improving not just in the eight hours you're at work, but the hours that you're committing to that outside of work. So you're you're refining your processes and getting better and better all along that path. So the outcome of the CTA, although is obviously the goal, it's it's really kind of irrelevant because you've become a better architect on that journey. Absolutely. Absolutely, I would agree. It's very much about the journey more so than the destination because when you're on an actual project versus a scenario project, you have to go for the CTA sort of a mile wide and a foot deep. Whereas on a, you know, full on enterprise transformation project, you're going to go as a senior technical architect or technical lead or whatever, you're going to go a mile wide and possibly a mile deep. And you're just thinking about how much resources and time you have. Time is a resource to dig all of that mile wide and a mile deep. And lots of times you're always struggling to get there. That is just the experience that comes with time in doing this and always continually looking for bigger challenges, obviously looking for excellent team members who you can work with because it's it's such a mountain to climb uh, on a large enterprise transformation. So. What about things like documentation, diagrams, things like that? Like, if you go back to how you thought as a developer compared to how you now think having started that CTA journey, like, have things like that drastically improved for you as well? Absolutely. Development and DevOps and those sorts, or uh, documentation and DevOps, always sort of a, a second thought sometimes when you're, especially a startup where your resources are at a, you know, absolute minimum and having a or scaled ads or whatever methodology you're using with a really solid CI CD pipeline, automated tests, you know, point and click testing, automation, those sorts of things. All of that comes at a premium. Although I was, you know, aware of it was always a nice to have. Now it's an absolute have to have. And also one of the most difficult things you can do when you're standing up a new program or a new company. Uh, there's entire sections of major uh, software manufacturers just dedicated to developer operations and DevOps and those sorts of things, communicating changes uh, you know, through a massive code base. When I think about an architect, I think of someone who draws a building and knows that if they draw it shifting 30 degrees to the side or something like that, it's probably going to fall over. So they, they don't draw it that way. And for software architects, it's a sequence diagram. How data moves through an enterprise system is extremely important. It has to travel through a lot of different vectors. This is a big part of the CTA, how you are going to integrate with other downstream systems and Salesforce. So I am in a habit now of doing that. You know, there's a component in this the CTA, uh, systems diagram, systems landscape diagram, data model diagrams. I am in lucid charts, you know, almost as soon as I start a phone call that's a working session. And even sometimes when they're not working sessions, I'm just trying to explain a complex con. I have to have a visual aid in front of me. And it is something that I think helps communicate technical ideas in a remote setting so much more effectively than, you know, when we were all working in offices together, 
Uh, the collaboration aspect of having a dry erase board is so important to help everyone conceptualize, share terminology and those sorts of things. So I am much more, you know, in this process, defaulting to those things. And I think it's made me a much more effective communicator to use those visual aids the way you would use an asset in a presentation for the CTA. Uh, the assets are a big component. They're not required. They don't say you have to draw X, Y, and Z. You simply just have to answer the questions. The assets are a huge tool in answering those questions effectively in a way, because at the end of the day, your pass or fail is going to be based on whether or not the judges understood your solution, could make sense of why you made the decisions you did, and you know can ask pertinent questions to get you the most points and the things that they didn't understand. So those assets really take you to the next level, both in the CTA and just, I think, personally in, in uh, software architecture. If you were still in the startup world now, you probably wouldn't have like the luxury of choice, right? In terms of what you get to work on and to work towards a goal, because like you said, you're putting fires out, like you're just, you're trying to make ends meet day to day to be able to like ship a piece of code or, or, you know, fix a bug. Like that's your main focus. It's right in front of you there. Whereas I guess the benefit of working in a bigger organization somewhere like Accenture now is that you you have a goal and you're working towards that goal of being a CTA. And do you get to kind of shape your role a bit more? Like do your direct managers help you kind of go onto the projects that are going to help with that goal of becoming a CTA? Well, because we don't have that many CTAs around it, we could always use more technical architects at any large organization. Because of that, especially with a consultancy, uh, I get the opportunity to sort of, you know, moonlight from my main project, helping with pre-sales initiatives, uh, which is something that I think is really important for technical architects to be involved in, because at the end of the day, if you land on a project and that something's been sold by a sales team that is you know, wildly underestimated or anything like that, you are in for a world of hurt. And so I think I've had an opportunity to moonlight in a lot of different interesting projects just uh, because of the relationships I've built with the other technical architects within my organization. So that's been a real advantage. And then if I were to go back in startup or if I was in that startup, obviously I would have a much more stronger opinion of delegating and confidence in building things up for my team. I think when you're a one-man show and you are so close to the code and everything like that, you're always in this this state of paranoia that like I there's something that could be fixed better or what if that bug pops up because you know you know where all the skeletons are buried in your product when you're a uh, you know lead engineer and product owner and all of the things you have to be at a startup at once you have to be able to delegate distinguish you know what is a task that I can assign to somebody else and I'm not going to micromanage them of course I. I despise micromanagement, but where does someone need to learn? Where does someone need to fail for the first time and come back and say, okay, I failed. What did you try? Let's see if we can fix this versus like, we just need to get this done now. I, you know, I don't have time to teach you, which I also think is a word that should never come out of a technical architect or a lead developer's mouth. I don't think that's a sentence that should come out of their mouth. I don't have time to teach you. I believe your role as a leader or a manager, any organization, large or small, is that you work for everybody below you. They don't work for you. So your job is to enable everyone to get their job done. And so that's what I'm thinking about on a daily basis uh, across a bunch of different projects. Like, how can I help this person get their job done 
so that you know we can move on to the next thing, we can deliver this this project in, in time. And I know you interview people, right? Like you're involved in in hiring, and you spent a long time coding before you moved into that kind of architecture space. And and I feel from speaking to people in the market, there, there's a bit of a rush, right, to get away from the hands on aspects of a role, and and people want progression. I think Salesforce plays a part in a way because of the the certifications, and people are getting certified as architects quickly in their career, and therefore want to be playing the role of an architect. But for you, do you think it's important to still keep your hand in, you know, keep your eyes on the code, keep solving problems at that ground level and um, and, and not being in a rush to, to move away from the hands-on aspects of, of the Salesforce role? Absolutely. You know, I still like to, and I, I think it's a very important aspect of understanding at a basic functionality level, how to review code and, you know, checking in on code reviews and how they're going. From a bandwidth perspective, coding is very labor intensive. It takes a lot of time. Time comes at a premium when you have to go to meetings all day, which is sort of what enterprise architects do at a consultancy is go to a lot of meetings. So when I do interview people, I've been doing this long enough now that uh, unfortunately, like we don't have a lot of time to do the interviews for Accenture because when we are hiring, we're hiring a lot of people. Um, and I think that's kind of a disadvantage when I was at a startup, when I, you know, was thinking about interviewing for the Googles and the Facebooks of the world, I was, you know, prepping myself for these whiteboard coding interviews. And I actually started a meetup group helping people do this so that I could get easy prep myself. I would love to be able to do coding tests with people or pair programming. I really love doing pair programming interviews where we just open up and I'm like, okay, here's a prompt. Let's work on it. Show me your thought process here of doing this. It tells you a lot about what that person's thought process is. And I don't care if you look up in Google things. What I'm concerned about is how you solve problems, how you you work under pressure. If you know, you're confident enough to ask for help when you need it, I think one of the most dangerous things that any new developer can do is sort of get stuck on a problem and not raise their hand because they think they will sound like they don't know what they're doing or they're not prepared for their role. The on-the-job training has, unfortunately, in my opinion, in North America, we've moved towards a mentality of checking boxes for experience and certifications and those sorts of things because junior people, unfortunately, can be outsourced a lot. And that work can be sent overseas where it's more inexpensive. And so there's not as many opportunities for mentorship and relationship building for people just joining the organization. So I, I, I for example, have a call once a week. Uh, I just call it the Lightning Developer Forum at my company, and it's open to developers. There's no, there's no format or anything like that. My goal is because Accenture is so distributed across, you know, different localities and time zones and developers, uh, it's really hard to, and, and clients, it's really hard to build a community like you would have at a startup or something like that of the developers. And so my hope is to, you know, we just get on, there's no PowerPoint deck, there's no nothing like that, just screen share, Visual Studio Code. Sometimes we're reading, you know, Hacker News. Sometimes we're reading Salesforce release notes. Sometimes we're trying to debug JavaScript for somebody. So it is, you know, totally open-ended. We even talked about doing sales pursuits and like how, how a developer who's been invited to join a sales pursuit should even like, the first time I got on a sales call with my company, I was like, uh, I'm here and I write code. <laughs> that was like my, my intro for myself. I, I really think it's important to 
build mentorship. And uh, that starts at an interview. And I know a lot of the people I've interviewed, you know, because I try and keep it conversational uh, because of the limited amount of time, just talking about like, what's your, what's your journey with Salesforce? How'd you find out about it? Why are you doing what you do with Salesforce? What inspires you to, you know, keep working in a technical role every day? Those are the conversations I really enjoy having in the interviews because I'm like, oh yeah, I, I can see, I can think of myself in this journey. I can think of where I was at that point. I'm not really worried about quizzing you on your skill set as much as I am understanding where you are in your journey and where this next role is going to help you get to, right? I think an employer should play a very important role in developing their employees into senior leaders, people who can achieve their goals in life, you know, and it doesn't have to be making a bunch of money for the company or making money for, you know, yourself. Maybe you just want to, you know, retire when you're 40 and go surf in Fiji or something like that. The company's goal should be like, how do I get that person to their goal of being able to go surfing in Fiji? It's not just about, you know, working people until they burn out, but it does take an extra earnest investment on the time of the directors and managers of those companies to really get people there. So that just comes to being mindful and putting in the extra legwork on a daily basis. So you know, just looking at yourself in the mirror and saying, what did I do to help someone who works for me get to their career goals today, this week, this month? And if I didn't, then should I really be in management? I'm interested in your take on burnout, actually, because you strike me as someone that has probably worked a lot of hours um, in your career, especially when you, you were in that hardcore coding capacity. Like, is your take on burnout, it's only really if you're not passionate about what you're doing that you would become burnout? Or is it just based on hours worked and, and lack of downtime? Because like you said, you were caffeine and coding, right? That was your passion. So I, I started working with a career and mindfulness EQ coach about four years ago. And, uh, you know, give a shout out to her, Lila Entzim, uh out of Southern California. I can get the website to anyone who's interested. And she has been phenomenal in shaping my thinking about mindfulness and awareness in my daily life. And so I think managing burnout and managing stress have so much more to do with awareness, self-awareness, both of your emotional state and your physical state, your body state. You know, I wrote an intro for a friend's book recently, Succeed in Software by Sean Cannon. And I spoke about how I, I did find myself in a serious state of burnout during my startup, when I left my startup, because I was not aware of the toll it was taking on me emotionally and mentally, and also physically. Once I started to become more aware of, hey, I'm burning out, I need to step back because I'm not going to be able to achieve my goals for this today, this week, this year, if I don't, you know, downshift here. And so it comes from awareness. I'm a big advocate of transcendental meditation. I practice hot yoga twice a week and do spin classes. I, I think physical fitness is such an important part of it and building strong habits in that area. Uh, also, you know, diet has been really formative for me. And then uh, reading, thinking about awareness and, uh, you know, putting those things to practice on a daily basis have really helped me understand that you know, I can push myself to a much higher level if I am mentally trained for it. So mental health is one of those things that you have to train it like you train physical health. It's going to the gym every day for your brain 
to, you know, have the strength to be mentally aware of when you need to step back from something, when you have a relationship with a colleague or coworker that's tense, when you're injecting ego into your communications. Uh, that's been a working point for me. I, I write my emails to myself first, and then I read them and just highlight where I'm like being persnickety about, you know, people delivering on their promises to execute for some counterparty interface or program or something like that. And just like, scraping them for the facts, having an awareness that because there's been a lot of chaos in the software industry over the last year since, you know, the the stock market has started to fall, there's a lot of reorganization going on, there's layoffs, there's uncertainty about people's careers, and it's permeating through everyone's just communication and just daily interfacing with each other. We're all at a higher level of stress because of this. You know, even if you haven't been laid off, if you are aware that 10% of your company was just shown the door last week, you're going to be thinking about that. Or, or I think there isn't a single person that works in tech that doesn't have a friend or relative that has been affected by the changes in the industry, whether it's reorging within your organization, which changes priorities, changes politics, it changes the entire mentalities of business units where you have new leadership. I mean, it, attitude mindset permeates from the top. And so you have a new leader in an organization, uh, it's, you know, their entire pyramid of people, it filters all the way down to everyone. So I've learned a lot about trying to step outside of that for myself, whereas I think I would have been much more drawn into the stress uh, had this happened, you know, five years ago. And I hope to be much further along in a year than I am today. And I can't even imagine how much further along I'll be in, in five or 10 years, as long as I keep setting goals and keep building on that training, that mental, you know, I, I'm doing a jump rope motion with my arms here. <laughs> <laughs> was that always something you were aware of though? Like, obviously I appreciate now the coach has drawn that out of you, but like, because that, that seems to me like you're, you are big on self-development, not just from a mental health and a mental wellness perspective, but also like career development. So has that been like a mental shift for you um, since the, maybe since the burnout phase? Or uh, has it always been something that's kind of been in your mind, like self-development and self-improvement and, and self-health is, is important? Sometimes it's, it's a moment of clarity that comes for people who have mental health and addiction issues. Something that I have been ancillarily aware of in my, my personal life for my entire adult life, just due to you know, family members having mental health and addiction issues. When you hit a rock bottom, uh, there's nowhere to go but up. It's not to say that you're you're always going to be going up, you know, in a straight left to right horizontal chart. Life is not like that. It's much more like a stock chart. <laughs> I'm very interested in the stock market. So when I think about, you know, my mentality and my life and my successes or, or my career development, I think about the ups and downs. And, you know, Ray Dalio, who wrote a book called Principles, uh, you know, he draws it as an infinite infinity loop of experiences where you you come to experience this is another one of those and then you can go back on and everything like that awareness is something that has certainly come to me i think after having reached a what i thought was you know a pinnacle of my life and then you know i have my own startup we have venture capital funding i was like oh this is the coolest thing you know i managed to raise money from vcs like i thought i, I was the coolest guy in the world and then you know 2 years later 
you know, I'm burned out and wanting to walk away from the company and saying, I don't care about my, you know, paper equity in this company. I, I need to unpluck. So it's been a progression. It's been a journey. Um, I think the CTA is actually, you know, just another peak in that journey for me. And I'm really excited about, you know, once I get to the top of that hill, what's the the next hill I want to climb? And because I have that awareness of like, hey, there's probably going to be periods of time, even after I get to this peak of the hill, where my career is not going to go in the direction that I want it to, but I have awareness of when I'm sloping down both mentally and emotionally, so I can, you know, get myself back on a track that could take me to the next level. That's amazing that you've got that awareness because so many people would struggle with that. And it's amazing that you've taken steps to draw that out and to, to get help to, to achieve that level of awareness. So um, my final question is for you to talk to anyone that's listening to this that is maybe at the beginning of their career. And, you know, they might be going on like having some of these peaks that you've had and the journey that you're going on and might not have the awareness yet to take it for what it is and to understand that there will be ups and downs. But for any software engineer starting out their career, ideally in the Salesforce space, what would be your best piece of advice to, to someone at that stage of their career? For me personally, my career in software has been really about pursuing my passion for technology and understanding and learning how things work. I think a lot of people who are inclined to work in uh, software or engineering in general are very inquisitive people. You don't want to take just the it's an iPhone or, you know, it's Facebook and say it is just a service that I use or a thing that I have. The, the inquisitive comes from like, for me personally, it was like, okay, how does a software system work? How are ones and zeros transformed into the amazing pieces of technology that we use today? Uh, how does a microprocessor know how to transmit video between you on the other side of the planet and myself? you know, over fiber optic cable that's sitting at the bottom of the ocean. Most people would be like, I thought it came over a satellite or a radio dish or something like that. And I'm like, no, it's it's trans-Pacific underseas cables. So you can look at this map online and they're flashing lights down pieces of glass a thousand miles long. I was always in the startup space looking at how things worked, like cryptocurrency was one of those things and video encoding and transmission software with my startup. And I was always curious about like, how do I build that, right? Like, how how did they build it? They don't have some magic wand. They literally have the exact same pieces of computer hardware that we have sitting on our desktop. That's the, the amazing thing about software uh, engineering is, is, you know, because of Moore's Law and, and the power you can have at a computer now and cloud computing, especially, uh, one of the things that really drew me to it was the fact that wow, you could serve a million people concurrently with this piece of software at the same time, like a million people could be using the same piece of computer software. It was still like early days for software as a service when I got into this and Facebook was just still kind of in its infancy. It launched at my school a few weeks after I was a freshman and mobile was also really in its infancy. I, I took my first Uber ride at Dreamforce in like 2010 or something like that. And it was just this goofy thing that was like, if you have your iPhone and they're going to send a limo car to pick us up, we don't have to call a taxi or a van. And you could see the car on this tiny little low resolution map that refreshed like every, I don't know, it felt like a long time. And I was like, oh my gosh, how are they doing this? 
And so if you can find that inquisitive nature and apply it to your work, then you'll, you'll turn into the super coder uh, that I was, not by choice, but by just addiction to trying to solve problems. That's a very valuable thing for any organization because, you know, at the end of the day, like, you know, these corporations are not straitjackets, right? They are, you know, major implementers of, you know, buyers of technology and everything like that. When I interview people, the first thing I really want to ask them is like, what kind of coding do you do when you're not at work? And it tells me so much about somebody in terms of their attitude, especially when they're really junior and they're younger, they don't have, you know, the whole family. And, uh, you know, for me, I have to go to bed pretty early now. Um, so after, after yoga or cycle class, I, I'm usually in bed pretty early. Um, but it really tells me a lot about the character uh, of that person. You know, I read a book by Eric Schmidt when he was running Google called, I think it was How Google Works. And he said, I want to hire smart creatives. I want to hire people who have the technical chops, but the creativity to push the organization forward. And so even though I work in enterprise software consulting and you think it would be the most, you know, the movie office space, uh, the most, uh, you know, drab, dry thing ever. And there are aspects that are a little bit like that. I'm not going to lie, but the stuff that really gets me up out of bed is when there's an opportunity to solve a hard problem and get my hands on with it. So look for those things and uh, you will be successful in your career and you will be able to teach yourself the most complex and crazy things because you want to know how they work. That's awesome and, and such a great way to sign off. So if anyone uh, is listening and wants to, to reach out, pick your brains, ask any questions, where's the best place to find you? LinkedIn, just my uh, full name, Jordan Bakke. There are actually a lot of Bakis in New Zealand I learned after Facebook got big. I have a, a, a German forefather who I guess uh, emigrated and helped populate the island of New Zealand. So yeah. uh, I got to get down. I got to get down there someday. I know you're Australian. I don't know if that's a thing, but yeah, just uh, look me up on uh, LinkedIn. If you're interested in Salesforce, their algorithm should uh, bring me pretty close to the top of the search results. So. Awesome. Well, thank you so much. Really, really, really enjoyed the chat. It was uh, great to have you on the show. Yeah, awesome. Thank you, Ben. So that's a wrap for this week's episode. And thank you very much for listening. I hope you enjoyed the chat. And if you did, please make sure you have subscribed for future episodes that are coming through. I would also be very grateful if you would consider leaving a review on your chosen podcast platform as five-star reviews will help us to reach more trailblazers from across the world. I look forward to sharing another episode with you soon and thanks again.